There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I am with thee. Peace be still in all of life's ebb and flow. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. He's me singing as I go. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Fear not, I to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I, I shared with you earlier, you know, I, I, um, I was jealous that Joey got to preach out of John last week. And I, I, I even thought, you know, Monday morning, I was like, I could just pick up John 18. We could just have seven goals, you know, instead of nine. Um, we don't have to finish off this, this next two. I've been, I've been eager to get back in John anyway. I can just get back in, uh, in, in the gospel of John. But um, I really wasn't allowed to. <laughs> um, my flesh wanted to, but uh, I, I began to think about the picture of someone drowning. And I pray that none of us ever have to see anybody drowning. But in the case that you saw someone drowning, it's likely that you would intervene. It's likely that you would at least call for help, if not swim out there and try to rescue them from drowning. And you have the picture of drowning where water is coming in. It's hard to breathe. They cannot swim. They cannot take care of themselves. They are quickly approaching what could be a likely death. And it would be a sin for me to move on to John this morning rather than to rescue the person who's drowning. And so that's why we're in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. This passage is a hard one, uh, but one that can't be ignored, and one that's important for us moving forward in the year 2019. Uh, we'll read it in just a moment, but first let me just give you some context of, of what's going on here. I, I think the best place for us to see what's happening in chapter 18 is to actually look at chapter 16. We were here a few months ago, you remember back in October? Look at chapter 16, uh, verse 18. When we did the kind of commemorating Main Street, this was the first sermon ever preached at Main Street Baptist Church, 1618, what does it say? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Jesus was very clear with his 12 disciples from the get-go 
that I am building a church for my own glory. I am coming to fulfill this new covenant. God established for a, pe- a people for himself in the Old Testament, right? This, this people of Israel are, are now being grafted in where, where Gentiles can be included. And he is making a new people for himself, no longer called Israel, but called the church, called the people of God, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Peter, I'm building my church. And what's his first step? Peter, take the keys. Take the keys. There's some controversy over what in the world that means, but let me just say, who's the the key holder at the local bank or at the grocery store or at the sales office? The key holder is that person who has been given authority. Not anybody is given a copy of keys to an important place, And, and even through background checks and ethics classes and master's degrees, Many key holders abuse their authority. And so what does it mean for Peter to take the keys to Jesus' church that he's building? And by the way, when his disciples heard that, they wouldn't have thought of some grand cathedral with stained glass windows and a a massive steeple, right, And, and stone walls and all these things. No, it's talking about a people, the called out ones. I'm gonna build my people. What does it mean for Peter to have the authority, the keys over this people. Well, um, I think that the handing over of authority that Jesus gave to Peter is something that has continued throughout history and, and, and was not a picture only of Peter taking the keys, but all of his disciples, his people, given to the church that he was building. The, the, and, and this was maybe a transition from disciples to apostles, right? From followers to, to men who had authority over Jesus' church with him being the head and him giving him the keys so they can lead and take care of this church. And he's given that authority to the church then, not just to the apostles, but to the church. The church has the keys itself. And we need to carefully decide, just like Peter had to decide, what we are going to bind and what we are going to lose. And a lot of people quote that, and I don't know what it means, right? It sounds interesting, and we're going we're gonna to come back to that in a little bit. But right now, I want you to see that Jesus starts off in chapter 16 by giving his church authority. And in chapter 17, he begins to show them more of himself. The transfiguration takes place. He heals a boy with a demon, an, epilept, an epileptic, and, and he, he talks about how they couldn't do it because they didn't have enough faith, and he continues to talk about his death and resurrection, and then he, he talks about uh, um, paying taxes. Aren't you glad I'm not preaching on that this morning, um, at this time of the year? I, I wish we could just go find a fish somewhere, right, and, and pull a coin out of its mouth um, before, uh, before April, but... Um, uh, we have this, this, this challenge of authority and how they're going to use their authority to take care of their church. And then in chapter uh, 18, we have this response to sin. What a relevant topic for today, huh? If, you, if you're familiar with the Methodist church, they're going through a lot of trouble on how the church responds to sin right now. God has given the church the keys, the authority to respond to sin in a certain way. Now, let me just give you a little bit of context. What's happening in chapter 18? It it, it begins with an argument. 
right? They're having their famous who's the best, who's the greatest argument. And he says, uh, maybe when you're as humble as this little kid, perhaps you'll be the greatest. Right now, you're a mess, you dismiss the humble, and you welcome the prideful. And he says in verse 6 that whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, or who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Causing a humble brother to be puffed up against you because of your own pride is a dangerous sin, and that's not how you wield the keys, Peter and the apostles. It's better for you to die than to wield the keys that way. And then in verse 7, likely going along with our Sunday school lesson with Jesus being tempted in the desert, he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by who temptation comes. And again, we have a reference to how the church responds to sin. Jesus says that it would be better to lose a hand or a foot or an eye and to be thrown into the lake of, or to be thrown, then to be thrown into the lake of fire, having all your body parts, right? This is how dangerous sin is. It's not a game. Wield the keys carefully when temptation comes. And then he gives that famous parable in verse 12. Chapter 18 is so good. He talks about the sheep, the lost one, right? The, the shepherd's already got 99 sheep, but when the one goes off wandering, goes astray, gets caught in sin, a.k.a., what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 who are safe there in the pasture to go get the one who's wandering astray, who's caught in sin. He says the Father's will is that none of these little ones should perish, not even one. And so he's saying, apostles, wield the keys admirably when one of your own goes astray, no matter how big the risk is. And then we skip verse 15. That's where we're going to be and go to the end. Chapter, verse 21, Peter, Peter's got a question now. He, he, come, he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when my brother sins against me? Should I, should I do it seven times? Oh, and, and what, what, a, what a, a generous man Peter is to say seven, right? The, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees in their, their book of the law, you know, they would have said three Three opportunities for forgiveness. So he's going to double it and add one. You know, he's really generous here, right? And Jesus says... Not seven, but 77 times, or, or your Bible might say 70 times seven. It's 70 on top of seven times. It, it's an exaggeration to say that you should have an unlimited supply of forgiveness offers sitting in your pocket at all times. And then he's got another story. How about the master and the servant? The, the master uh, um, talking to his servant has this great debt that the servant cannot pay back. And he begs and he pleads with his master, please, you know, save me. And he was going to um, uh, put him in jail and, and all of that. And, and, and the, the master took pity on the servant and forgave him his debt. But then the servant had another servant of his own who was in debt to him. And, and he, he went to collect his money and began choking his servant, threatening his life. And the master comes and sees what's happening here and says, you wicked man, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he put that servant in jail, and he says, so will my father do to you who don't forgive a brother from the heart. So I'm taking up a lot of valuable sermon time on 
chapter 18 right now, because I want you to see that Matthew chapter 18 is all about rescue. Jesus gave his church authority to be a coalition of sin-killing, risk-taking, mercy-offering, love-controlled rescuers. If you don't see that in chapter 18, then I need to go back, and we're going to just take up more time. Do you see that in chapter 18? Jesus gave some serious authority to these men as key holders. And when we refuse forgiveness, when we allow people to go astray, when we fall prey to temptation and condone the sin of our brothers and sisters, we abuse the power of the keys. Instead, every one of, this, every one of us in this room should take seriously our authority to rescue the perishing among us and pursue forgiveness with rejoicing as the end goal, right? We are all a group of rescuers. And now we have the hard passage in verse 15. This is where we'll be. I think the words are on the screen. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Chapter 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Father, help us. So we're going to go through three types of rescue that Jesus is describing here in these few verses. The first type of rescue is private rescue. Private rescue. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins. If your brother sins. And your brother sins specifically against you. Now let me be very specific and tell you who Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the world. Okay? He's talking about Christians relating to other Christians. When a brother sins. He, he, he's not talking about um, people of this world being mean to us. He's talking about the church sinning against the church. Right? We turn the other cheek for the world. We don't do that for our brothers. When our brothers come against us, you know, we, we expect the world to strike us. We expect the world to be sinful towards us. We do not expect our brother to do those kinds of things. And what, what's the sin that the brother is doing here? Well, Jesus doesn't specify what kind of sin it is, but if we know the Bible, it doesn't really matter what kind of sin it is. If your brother lies to you about something frivolous or something unimportant, if your brother sleeps with your wife, if your brother writes a mean Facebook post about you, if your brother calls you a dummy, it doesn't matter what type of sin it is. Sin is not primarily about two people. Sin is first and foremost rebellion from one individual to God himself. It's about one person rebelling against the Lord. Sin is taking God's glory for ourselves, forsaking the Holy Spirit for our flesh, following the schemes of Satan who we once lived for. It's idolatry, it's blasphemy, it's damning, and it's worthy of hell. 
That's what we know to be true about sin, no matter how big or small. And this is how the church is to handle it. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now remember what the goal is, based on the whole context of chapter 18 that I just spent 10 minutes going over for you. Rescue. I want to gain my brother. He's drowning. I want to save him. I'm going to go to him. The goal is to rescue, to restore, to offer forgiveness, to make peace. And according to Jesus, the best way to do that is to go to him and to him alone. Just you and them. He doesn't say anything about talking to your mom, your dad, your sister, your cousin, your uncle, your peacemaking committee. Go to them. There might be wisdom in talking to your pastor, your mentor, somebody about what to do. I'm not saying you can't do that. But you don't talk to the whole neighborhood about someone's sin in the name of, I need help. That's not going to build up and edify the church. It's going to hurt her. You go and you talk to that person alone. That's step one. Now, if you can get over the barrier just of talking to the person alone, this is really the hard part, is to go and tell them their fault. Brother, I see this sin in your life, and it's hurting you, and it's hurting the church. And that's as far as most churches get. Because we, we, we have either seen this done really poorly or we're afraid that someone is going to shine a light on our sin and they're going to confront us about sin. So we get nervous. So, so, so most churches, whenever we see a brother caught in sin, we just don't really do anything. You know, it's going to cause too much fuss. It's going to cause too much drama. But doing nothing at all is still disobedience to Jesus Christ. Doing nothing at all is being a bad key, key holder. I think part of the problem is we don't think the reward is worth the work. What's the reward in verse 15? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Yeah, that's the reward. You've gained your brother, right? And you know what we say? I've got 99. What's one brother? I've got 99. It's not worth it. If this brother doesn't come around to seeing his sin and repenting and being rescued from himself, well, quite, quite frankly, it's, it's his own fault. I can make another brother. There are plenty of brothers and, and other people who love me. It's much easier to love them back because they're not in sin. And if that's you today, I've got a verse for you to go home and write on your heart. And that's James 5.19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Jesus taught you how to rescue. Jesus taught you how to drop your whole life to sell everything, to give up yourself for the sake of the sinner. Christ brought us out of our wanderings and out of our imminent, unavoidable death and covered a multitude of our own sins that he did not commit. He left the 99 for us. And why wouldn't we go to the one who's drowning in their own sin? We say, what's one brother? Dear friend, it's my obligation to tell you that like the servant in Jesus' parable, you know nothing of the gospel if that's your attitude to the brother caught in sin. You have not known forgiveness yourself. 
if you don't go to the brother. We who have been changed by the cross have an unrelenting pursuit of the wanderers among us, seeking to rescue them from the peril that they get caught in again and again and again and again, no matter how many times it takes. And you don't have to have this attitude toward the wandering among us. If you don't have that attitude, then you need to look to the cross once more. I don't care if you've looked at this cross a thousand times. Look at it a thousand and one times. He became sin. He lived a perfect sin life and he bore your sin on the cross because you were wandering because you were going astray you were lost you were caught in your own sin living for yourself you knew nothing of forgiveness you knew nothing of a savior you knew nothing of a deliverer you knew nothing of a rescuer and he came on our behalf to take away sin and to save us from ourselves to pick us up when we were dying when we were drowning and to bring us safely to shore Aren't you glad Jesus called you a sinner? Aren't you glad Jesus confronted you with your own wicked heart and called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Why wouldn't we go and confront others in their sin if we know what that's like? I want to gain my brothers. I want to gain them. I want to gain them. I want to rescue them. The first step is to confront, to say, brother, I love you. You know I love you. The Lord loves you, and the Lord disciplines those he, he loves. I see how you're treating your wife. And I just want you to know that it looks like sin. Can we, can we talk about this? Brother, you, you haven't been to church in months. Hebrews 10 says not to forsake the assembling of one another. And you're blatantly disobeying the scriptures. I know that, that this is a hard conversation, but I care about you and you need the church. I want what's best for you and so does the Lord. Brother, on more than one occasion, I've heard you talk hurtfully about this person in our church. And, and you may not like their personal choices, but gossip is clearly sin. 1 Timothy 5.13 says so. Brother, I'm concerned about some of the things you've been looking at on your computer your cell phone. Jesus wants his people to be holy and pure and not defiling themselves with these kinds of things. Can we talk about this struggle? If they listen, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. And that's how we make this place a gospel place. Because we're all about rescuing one another when they get caught. And you know what happens when we gain our brother? We rejoice. And so do a multitude of angels in the heavenly places when a, when a brother is won back from themselves in their own wander. They listen, we gain them. What if they don't listen? Let's look at verse 16. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, this is called partner rescue. We've got private rescue. If he doesn't listen, we've got partner rescue. Well, first of all, what does not listening mean? I mean, does, does it say he's deaf, right? He doesn't have ears? I think true listening includes the imparting of information and is followed by action. In other words, when I go through the drive-thru and they take my order, 
they're listening to me. And because they're listening to me, when I get to the second window, I expect to receive two apple pies and a coffee, right? They weren't listening, were they, Sandra, if I don't get my two, if I get two cherry pies and a large iced tea, right? They weren't listening very well. Listening results in action, okay? You, you have imparted information in such a way that they are now following through with what this new information inevitably prompts them to do. No listening means they didn't learn anything. And if they didn't learn anything, it means they're not going to do anything. They might say, you just don't understand what I've been going through. It's too hard to stop. And really, I don't think it's that big a deal. Doesn't the Bible say not to judge? Maybe you should mind your own business. I hear what you're saying, but I've talked to God about this, and he told me it was okay. These are all signs that our brother is not listening. And here's what we do if our brother isn't listening. You take one or two others with you, and you try again. You try again, and you try again, and you try again. Jesus is so adamant about reconciliation and, and peacemaking and forgiveness and rescuing the lost brother that it demands a team to be formed if necessary. It demands two or three to come together and to say if, if we don't at least try, then we got this guy's blood on our hands. We must try and try and try and try and try. And if first we don't succeed, we don't give up. We do it again and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. And this shouldn't be strange to us because what is Jesus' great commission? To save the whole world. That's, that's like the purpose of the church, right? He's gonna use his church to do that. Why wouldn't he use his own church, his own people, this great group of missionaries to go and reach the, the lost in the pews? And this is what the church does. It's in our DNA. We're lost seekers. We seek them out. We wanna rescue them. Spurgeon said, and Joey had Spurgeon last week, right? So I gotta come back and get the competition going. It is the whole job of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. It's not something that pastors do, not something that deacons do, it's something that churches do. We're rescuers, that's what we do. Well, who should we partner with? Who should we ask, right? Let's just use some wisdom here. Who would be the best person to join you on this mission to rescue a brother who's lost in sin? I don't think it would be a good, or I think it would first be a good idea for that person to genuinely care about the lost sheep. That'd probably be a good place to start, right? I don't care how mature they are in the congregation. If they don't care about the person, they're probably not a good person to ask, help you in this mission. They should probably care. And secondly, you know, Jesus keeps the context within the church. So any partners we choose in this endeavor should probably be members of the same church. You got a brother that's lost at Main Street? Don't get some, some, somebody else, you know? I mean, I think this, this is a mission of the church. And I'm not saying others can't be involved if the case is particular and allows for it. But I do believe that this is a church endeavor. And we should be members of the same church going to rescue this individual. To bring them back into the fellowship that they left. And that their sin is keeping them from. And, and also, I would recommend they be someone who understands Matthew 18. That'd probably be a good idea, huh? If they don't know what's going on and what we're doing, they should probably read through Matthew 18 and make sure that individual understands what the end goal, no matter what, is to rescue. We're not going here just to take notes and to, to be witnesses of a crime. 
And though it says that, we have to find charges of evidence if, again, they don't listen. But the first primary goal is to rescue. So if someone in your Sunday school class starts slipping off into some kind of sin or sins directly against you, who better to go and talk to them than the people in that Sunday school class? Right? Y'all don't need me. Y'all don't need deacons. You can, and it usually ends up being those individuals, but it doesn't have to be. All of you are equipped. If you know the gospel, you know how to rescue because Jesus rescued you, right? I want people coming to me and saying, Pastor Dale, I'm getting together a team. This brother hasn't listened. Do you have two, maybe one or two that you might recommend? Not Pastor Dale, this, this, this brother's in sin. You gotta go get him. That's not a rescuing church. It's not a rescuing church, Right? Be the church. And let me remind you here, not to be too hard on yourself, it's not this team that rescues people initially. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So more than anything, if you get to this stage and you recruit some partners for the rescue, y'all need to be doing a lot more praying than strategic talking. You need to be praying. You need to be broken on your knees for this brother who you are desperate to gain back. It's going to take a miraculous movement from God's able hand to show this brother his sin and to convict him by the Holy Spirit and to empower him with the faith that is necessary to repent and re-enter into the fellowship. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is going to take an act of God, not just a committee. And Jesus says that when your partner, when you partner with one or two others, there will be established charges and evidences from those two or three witnesses. And the only reason that we need this evidence from multiple witnesses is because, unfortunately, even though God is able, sin is blinding. And sin is so destructive. And there's a good chance that even after a team of rescuers get involved, saturated in prayer, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the brother still might refuse. And in such cases, there's one last step, and that's the public rescue. The public rescue. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there's a new word here. And it's not just the absence of listening, but it's the refusal to listen. If he refuses to listen to them, and if he refuses to listen even to church. In the first scenario, I think, you know, with, with this, this type of rescue, there was just not listening, but now the lost sheep is, is refusing to listen. It, it, it means he's being inattentive, he's disobeying sound counsel, and not only has the wandering sheep taken no action from the first conversation, but now he is blatantly disobeying and disregarding the beliefs of the church and the doctrine of the Bible. He hears the truth, and he deliberately defies the word of Christ. He refuses to listen. So Jesus says, if that happens, tell it 
to the church. Tell it to the church. Did Jesus really just command these key holders, these disciples, to go and tell the entire church about someone's sin? I mean, some of us might read this and be just shocked and appalled that Jesus would require this type of action. But if we know what the Bible teaches about the church and that the church is full of true, blood-bought, growing, patient, rescuing Christians, we should read verse 17 and say, "Ah, of course, of course. Who better to tell than all of these believers who've been rescued themselves? Who better to tell than, than in the entire church of rescuers who've entered into covenant before God with that lost brother? Who better to tell than these people who, who refrain from gossip and these people who refrain from worldliness and these people who strive to be holy and to love the lost? Who better to tell than the church? Who better to inform than they? This is Jesus going back to the sheepfold and recruiting all 99 to go get that lost sheep. Every single one of you sitting around in this quiet little pasture, do you not see the sheep dying on the mountain? Go get him! I don't need to apologize for being passionate. I wanted to just now. But this is so serious. People are drowning in Main Street Baptist Church. And we turn a blind eye and say, what's one brother? It's their own fault. We are a church of about 60 to 70 people right now. Can you imagine how it would feel if you were lost in sin and 60 to 70 people came knocking on your door every day. <laughs> Perhaps they really do love me. Perhaps they really do want what's best for me. Perhaps my sin really has blinded me from seeing the mistakes I was making. Perhaps I really do need to repent. These people won't give up on me. I don't get it. They won't stop. Because we've, we've known Jesus and we've known his own forgiveness. This is why people who get caught in sin usually just go to another church. Because the 99 didn't go after him very hard. Most churches aren't rescuing churches. We must be a people who begin to think that the best situation possible when someone gets caught in sin is to gain our brother. No matter what. This is an opportunity for God's glory. Someone is slipping away. Someone is doing something that, that people are finding out about. This is good news. We're going to go get our brother. We're going to go gain him back for the kingdom. Amen? But if he even refuses the entire church, that guy must have never been a believer to start with. He must have never tasted from the Holy Spirit. He must have never been washed from the fountain of blood. He doesn't know God. He's never truly known God. He's never repented. 
And so from now on, you should not affirm this brother as a Christian and a member of Jesus' body. Rather, you should see this brother as a Gentile or as a tax collector. Consider him lost. Consider him as someone outside the church rather than inside the church. Consider him as a man who has never met God. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's a very hard thing to do. Usually ends up in the newspaper, right? It causes church splits. It gives the church a poor reputation in the community. To be honest, most churches probably shouldn't do it because they don't know how. But I pray for Main Street. And I pray first that a day like that never comes for us. And I pray secondly that if it does, we'll follow Jesus and we'll be good key holders. If that's what it takes. If you look at verse 18, we're right back to where we started at the beginning of the sermon, right? What did Jesus say to Peter back in chapter 16? This thing about binding and loosing, right? That we quote a lot but don't always know what it means. We've been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And that heaven on earth is called the church. And he says, truly I say to you, let me remind you what I said two chapters ago. After I've told you this hard thing about rescuing. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And binding has this Old Testament sort of feel to it. That, that word means to, to keep law, to keep contract, to, to, to observe a ruling that's been put into place. Whatever you bind is going to be bound in heaven. And loosing has the idea of freeing, removing, letting go. And if we're going to treat the church like heaven... Whatever we bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever we lose on earth is going to be... If we're going to cheat, treat the church like heaven, that means that Jesus doesn't let Gentiles and tax collectors who haven't repented of their sins and put their faith in him into heaven, and we shouldn't let them into the church. That means we are careful not to bind unrepentant, faithless sinners in the kingdom of heaven. That's bad key-holding in fact, there's times when we should loose. There's times when we should let them go from his church. We don't bind them to things they don't even understand, so we, we, we loose them. We let them go. We, we, we don't bind them to heavenly things and incur guilt on our own hands. This isn't a popular thing to say, and I know that. That's why I wanted to be in John chapter 18. But I stand on the word of God telling you, Main Street, that we have to loose the unrepentant from among us. Don't argue with me, right? Argue with Jesus. And as we do that, let me remind you that the mission and the context of chapter 18 never changes. The goal is still to rescue. The goal is still to save. The goal is still to gain the brother. Only now we see them as someone who has never understood the gospel. Right? We still seek that sheep. We still go after them hard. And now perhaps that we've made this clear, distinctive line, we go after them harder than ever. Let me tell you a story. There was a Southern Baptist church in Virginia. About seven years ago, there was a man who was caught 
in repeated sexual immorality. And he was lying about it over and over and over and over and over again. I don't know what the sin was directly. But the church decided they were going to follow Matthew chapter 18. The man refused to listen to the first private encounter. By the way, this takes place over months and months and months and months. This isn't like a week long. All right, Monday, we're going to go to him. If he doesn't listen, Tuesday, we're going to get two or three. All right, then Wednesday, we're going to tell the church, right? No, this is a process. This is a prayerful, uh, uh, seeking the Lord's face, binding and loosing process. It can take years, okay, before you might gain that brother. So the church was following Matthew chapter 18, and he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. Eventually, they, they made the hard decision to loose him from the church, say, this brother is not a member of the kingdom of heaven. He does not know Christ. And about seven years later, seven years later, the man had come to Jesus. He'd come back to the church, and he was now giving his testimony. And this is what he told the congregation seven years after they literally excommunicated him, took him off the rolls, right? This is what he said. It's very hard for me to articulate the feelings I have about God's kindness displayed to me through the love of this church. Wait, what? When I walked away from this church and from God, my life was marked by hypocrisy, deception, and immorality. I lied to you with all of my life, if not by my own words. I'm sorry. But in the face of my wandering, God saved me from my sin and brought me to repentance. And these pastors at this church followed the guidelines of Matthew 18 and went above and beyond. They didn't have to call me and ask how I was doing. They didn't have to get coffee with me and encourage me and, and send me email devotionals to read scriptures. They, they didn't have to pray for me. They didn't have to continually appeal for me to repent over and over and over again as they did. They could have dismissed me so many times, but instead, they demonstrated amazing love to me. I was removed from membership for my own sake. And mostly, it was for the reputation of the gospel. I see that now. You loved me by disciplining me. You helped me to see the severity and the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. Because, because of this church discipline, I had my eyes opened. I tasted the world and found it bitter. I felt the cold contrast of life outside the church. But I remembered something of grace and love. I remembered this church. I remembered you. The Lord used these pastors and this congregation to be a shining example of the gospel that drew me to himself, I thank God for Jesus Christ and I thank God for you. I say to you today, Main Street, God knows the best way to rescue sinners, not us. And if we're going to wield the keys well, we need to do it his way because he's building his church. And I hope that in the last half hour or so, you have had a multiple, uh, you've had all these names and faces just running through your head. Oh, I pray that you have. If you haven't, do it now. Because this is real life. This ain't 
like biblical days. There are people in Main Street right now who are drowning in their sin. People who are wandering, people who are lost. They used to sit in this room. They used to sit next to you. They used to pray with us. Who will rescue them? Who will go to them? Who will save them? Will we stand idly by as they drown to death and live like hell and eventually spend a life in hell and eternity there? Or will we confront them in love? Will we tell them what we see and what the Bible says? Will we be willing to partner with others in the rescue? Will we be willing to get the entire church involved? Jesus left the 99. He forgave the servant a debt he couldn't pay. He did that for us. And if you're here today and you're lost, Christ is searching on the mountaintops for your soul to bring you into the sheepfold, to save you from your sin. And if you're here today and perhaps you are lost in sin, it's time to repent, brother. We love you enough to say it's time to come home. Stop what you were doing. Come to Christ. I want to end this service in a very special way, right? Main Street, I don't know historically. I ain't been here forever, right? Three and a half years now, I think, as your pastor. We're not always a bunch of altar people, right? This place ain't flooded on Sundays up here, and it doesn't have to be, you know? I'm just looking for people to make disciples, love each other, worship Jesus. But I want them full today because this demands our attention. I want these benches flooded with your arms and your tears and your knees because I can think of about eight to ten right now that need our rescue in our church. Who will go? Who will go? So I'll invite our musicians to come up. And we're going to um, sing a little bit. And uh, you guys can come on up. And we're going to reflect on those who are drowning in our midst. And this is where it starts. It starts when we get on our knees and beg the Holy Spirit to do a work that we're incapable of doing, to guide our loving hands, to, to, to help us remove judgmental, ugly thoughts towards sinners, and rather to have an attitude of, of seeking, pursuing those who are lost among us. And so I know this is something that I need to work on. And so I'm going to spend the next few moments praying, and I hope that you'll join me at the altar for Main Street Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.